I wanted to, uh, first of all, if, if tonight's your first time here, um, welcome. Hey, could you turn this down a little bit? I'm pretty excited tonight, so I just don't want to, yeah, thanks. Um, if tonight's your first time here, welcome. Uh, you know, it's already maybe a little bit different than your uh, typical encounter or experience with a church. Um, you know, these candles are representing the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And just a reminder to you all, we're, we're starting uh, the worship gathering differently from now until Easter. Uh, the ancient church would bring uh, a candle from the tomb of Christ, from the empty tomb of Christ, into their worship gathering as the reminder that He is alive and He has overcome. And so every week we're going to be beginning the service with lighting these. And just would welcome you to get here on time. I know that's uh, difficult for all of you uh, for some reason, but uh, we do start at 7. And so we'd love to have you here at that point. That would be great so we can get started. I did want to explain something to you uh, as well. You know, we have, uh, we have kids in the worship gathering for the first three songs, generally. And I want to explain why we do that to you, because I know for some of you who, are, who have just come, or you're wondering, like, why do I hear kids in here? That, that's not typical. Most uh, churches just have a, a kids' ministry where the kids go, or wh- whatever it is. Uh, I want to explain to you why we do that. I have two kids and a third on the way. And one thing I long for my children is that they have an opportunity in the gathering of the church, to see the body of Christ worshiping. Uh, In fact, on our teaching journal at the bottom, which you can pick up after the uh, worship gathering, it it, it always has one song for families that they can teach their kids that will be played in the first three songs. We desire to be a church community that's very intentional with our kids. They're not just some like riffraff running around that we kick in the booty every once in a while. We really desire them for for them to see and experience the blessing of this the blessing of the church community and so uh, we we dismiss the kids if if they so desire after the third song so that then they can go down and by the way downstairs it's not like a roller coaster tycoon down there it's they're learning the word of god right now they're going through genesis and they're learning about the beginnings of the earth now all of that being said we challenge our men our fathers and our families in this church community to be participating in and leading their families in daily family worship. So this then is just the opportunity for them to see what they're already doing in their home corporately, which is powerful. Uh, many of you who grew up in the traditional church, uh, you just got sent down somewhere and, you know, to go play games. We really desire to be a church our kids the word of God. And for, for those of you who are here at the Christmas service, you know that many of our kids know more scripture than you. Uh, they have memorized more passages than you have in the last year. We had a kid who was up here who literally spouted off from Luke 2, like 12 verses. Okay, well, Most of you know Jesus wept, and that's about the extent of your memorization. So be challenged and encouraged that in this church, every once in a while you're going to hear a cry. You're going to hear a laugh. You're going to hear uh, some kids talking. Get joyful about the fact that our kids get to watch you, the church, worship. Does that not excite you a little bit? Okay, all three of us, and that's probably generous. Um, listen, if, if tonight you're not ready to go, it's just going to be a long night for you, all right? It's just going to be a long night. So I, I feel like I need to, like, pray again, okay? Because I feel like for whatever reason right now as you sit there, it's like you need to be reminded that we're here to study the Word of God. So let me pray again for us. I'm going to pray that God does something in your heart that initiates you, engages you, so that as we dive in tonight, the Spirit can speak strongly. Are you with me? So let's pray. God, I pray right now by your power and not by creative human words that you will stir our hearts, you'll draw us to yourself, and that you will show us your great power 
overwhelm us with your grace. And for those that are here, God, who have zero church experience or just searching out what this all means, I pray, God, that you'll speak to them powerfully tonight. So we love you and we thank you in your holy and awesome name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter. The page number is on the screen. There's a Bible right in front of you. Uh, here at Matthias' Lot, we study the scriptures verse by verse. Uh, we've been going through 1 Peter for a few months now. It will take us another, uh, I'm, I'm estimating, eight and a half months to finish it up. Tonight, we're starting chapter 2. And, and tonight is going to be a whole lot of fun. So uh, chapter 2, verse 1, when you're there, say, I'm there. Yes, there's the enthusiasm I'm looking for. Verse 1. So... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Uh, Put up verse 1 for me. Now, uh, the first word that is so interesting to me is so. Uh, Many of you guys have friends that tell really, really, really long stories that have no point. Anyone? Right? I mean, they just, they can talk about anything. And after like 16 or 17 minutes of nothing, they say, so what I'm trying to say And then they just say it in one sentence, what you've been longing for, for 16 minutes. And they finally just get to it. Like, like, so is this generally this transitional word that, that means, okay, now I'm going to tell you why I've been blubbering. The difference about Peter's so is this is actually a very powerful so. Yes, it does uh, connect to the previous things that he's been talking about. But it's more like, and I'm going to share all this so... And then I'll go on to keep talking. Now, previously, do you guys understand what he's talked about? He's talked about the power of being born again, having rebirth in Christ, and the opportunity, like we studied last week, to love our brethren, to be joyful in loving our brethren. So he says, so put away. Um, Now, we need to just be vulnerable a little bit. Uh, I want you to think back to when you were... 10 years old. Can you think back that far, right? For some of you, that's been a while. For others of you, that was like yesterday, okay? But 10 years old. Imagine your room, okay? Uh, for me, I had a water bed. Any other water bed people here? Weren't those things amazing? Like, bring them back. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was just, you were just like, it was like a circus of love every time you went to bed. You know what I mean? Like, things were rolling around your pillow. I mean, it was, it was incredible. I don't know why they got rid of them. And, you know, and you're always fearful of the leak, right? Like one night you're just going to wake up in this pool of, you think sweat and it's, you're actually dying because you're like drowning in your waterbed, which would be a horrible way to die. Anyway, so, right? Uh, so for me, I, I, I grew up in this room. It was, uh, it was classically red and black, right on. Red shag carpet, anyone else? Shag carpet, okay. And um, it, it, actually my parents put me in the basement. No other bedrooms down there. Any of the rest of you live on your own floor? Just because they're like, just go away from us. Like, stay down where no one else is, right? Let me ask this. How many of you, your room was, was literally just, your laundry was, you're, you're a laundry floor person. How, how many of you just be willing to be vulnerable? Your laundry goes on the floor, all right? Hold up your hands high. These are the people we need to be praying for tonight, right here, all of you, right? Your laundry goes on the floor, instantly creating a stench, you know, like the sweat pockets from your Garb just sinks into the carpet pad. I mean, it just gets gross. Uh, how many of you guys, just, your room was like pristine as a kid, 10 years old, pristine. These folks we also need to pray for, for different reasons, all right? These are, these are the folks, a little OCD, all right? Clean things up, really, really nice. No matter what your room was like, you heard those two words 
as a child all the time. Put away. Put away. Whether it was a toy room or a bedroom. Your parents were always saying, put that away. Now, why would they say this? What's the point of putting things away? The idea is you put things away so that they'll be out of the way. So that they'll be hidden. So that, so that you can't see them anymore. So right, right now in my house, we have this toy room, okay? That we, it used to be our guest bedroom. Then it was a guest bedroom slash toy room. And now we just sort of like, all right, we have too many kids in our law family. It's awesome. This is now a toy room. And after law family, it's chaos. So we come and, hey, kids, put it away so that it won't be in the way. This is the exact same idea that Peter's teaching here. He's going to say, put these five things away. So, because of the greatness of God, because you're born again, you have a new nature, put these five things away so they can get out of the way so that you can better pursue holiness. And we'll talk more about that in verse 2. Now, uh, any of you guys like graphs? Any of you guys like graphs? I mean, you just love like filling things in. That, what we're about to do, like you'll be obsessed with, okay? For the rest of you, uh, you will struggle and just work with me. So put up the, you know, oh, ooh. Some of you instantly just got excited. You're like, dude, lines and they all connect and words at top. Like, this is awesome, okay? Now listen, what I want to do for you is I want to work through these five things. Because if you're like me, you read malice and you're like, uh, so what's, what's, like, how do you malice someone, Right? You're, 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 like you're just confused about the, what that means. So we're, we're going to work through all five of these things. And, and I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you a couple of things. I'm going to show, hold on. Not, not yet, Andrew. Come on, bro. You're, there we go. Thank you. All right. The, we can't show the hand too early. You know what I'm saying, bro? Come on. We're, we got a lot of things to fill in here. I, I want to show you the Greek word for this. After you leave here, you're going to be able to say malice in, in Greek, which will be awesome, right? So you'll be talking to your wife and you'll just be able to bust out the Greek word for malice anytime she does that or her husband to you. Uh, I then want to work through the Greek definition And probably most importantly, listen, one of my favorite verses right now is Romans chapter 13, verse 14. And it says this, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. So if we're to put away certain things, the scripture says we are to put on the Lord Jesus. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, when it's talking about the whole armor of God, you know what the scripture says? Put on the full armor of God. So we're not just going to look at these five grotesque words, but we're also going to look at what is the word to put on. So are, are you ready to fill this out together? Okay. Awesome. First word, Andrew, malice. Now, the Greek word for malice uh, is this. Go ahead and put that. It's kakia. And uh, this word shows up several times in the New Testament, specifically talking about uh, believers' interaction with one another. That's its biggest reference. And it literally means this. To desire to cause pain. So I am, my heart is filled with malice when I desire to cause others pain. Now I think this happens most often in two different ways for us. When someone wrongs you, there's oftentimes this desire to cause pain. Now we can laugh about this because, you know, in traffic, you know, someone cuts you off. And literally in that moment, you'd never want anyone to think this, but you're thinking in your mind, I would grenade launch your car right now if I could, you know? I mean, you've just cut me off for like the fourth time. I will blow up your trunk. You know what I'm saying? I hope the best for you, but that, right, we can laugh about those type of things and, and it seems funny, but, but what about the times that, that are real? 
relationships that you're involved in, when someone hurts you, the gospel says forgive, and yet oftentimes we're like, I really in the depths of my heart desire to cause pain on your life so that you'll be miserable in the way that you've caused me to be miserable. The second way that we build up malice in our heart is if people have upped us, and I'm not sure if that's a word, but if if they've upped us, if they've proven themselves greater, if their gifts extend themselves in such a way that it, it diminishes us, if people have wronged us or if they have upped us, then, then there wells up in us this desire to cause pain in their life. Now, this is a wretched thing to feel, especially as a believer. And I believe this is why the gospel is so crystal clear about what believers are to do in times when people wrong us. We're to deal with the situation. We're to be honest. We're to confront it. We're to love through it. We're to forgive. Peter said, how many times are we supposed to forgive? 70 times 7. In other words, keep forgiving. And maybe for those of you that really, really struggle with malice, maybe you just need to be reminded of the cross. You see what I'm saying? And for each of these, what will happen is, is you'll be like, oh yeah, the cross. The cross is the greatest example of what it means to not build up malice. You deserve death. We deserve death. And what does Christ do? By his power and his grace, he forgives. So instead of putting, so, so we'll put away malice and we'll put on this. A desire to cause joy to all I meet, to everyone I interact with, to everyone I speak with. What's going on in my heart and my mind Is how can I cause joy? How can I show joy? How can I make this conversation and interaction more joyful? This is Christ. This is putting on Jesus. And now for many of you, 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 you're just completely content walking into a conversation and being a recluse. But that's not the point here. The point is, I'm going to get rid of this desire to cause pain. And inwardly, I really, really desire to be joyful. Next word is this. Deceit. Uh, the Greek word for deceit is uh, delos. And listen, th- this is those of you that embellish. Th- this is those of you, the definition that, that you're tricksters, you're, you're crafty. The closest Greek definition is, is this trickery. You're, you're someone that that spends your entire existence, or at least momentary times of, exist, of your existence, making sure that you have tricked everyone into believing something else. So you're the guy who always exaggerates. Uh, you're the person who people have a difficult time believing anything you say because they're wondering if, if, if what's coming out of your mouth is actually true. Because inwardly, you've developed, listen, this, this great sense of pride, and it's masked... By low self-esteem. Often, and I know this seems weird, often those who have the lowest self-esteem are ultimately the most prideful. Why? Because all they're thinking about is them, their own condition all the time. I'm no good. I'm no good. And it's not in a healthy gospel way. It's just, it's just I have issues. I have issues. Those people, even though they appear to be the most humble, they're a lot of times the most prideful. And so a lot of times those folks just spend their entire time tricking everyone, deceiving everyone, embellishing stories so that inwardly it can build themselves up. Listen, how great would it be if we could just believe one another? 
Why do we have to spend so much time in our interaction just wondering if what they just said is true? And, and I'm not just talking about how big a fish you caught, right? I'm not just talking about things that we laugh about. We're talking about real, genuine conversation. Next word. Uh, so instead of uh, putting away deceit, we're to put on this desire to please Christ and not man. When I literally get to the point in my life where I do not care what man thinks anymore, do you understand how freeing that is? I can waste no more energy or no more time on making sure that all of my conversations are accurate. And those of you know that. Those of you who are deceivers and embellishers, you struggle because you're trying to make sure that all the people that you've told the story to, you've kept accurate because it's not really true. So you're like trying to remember the details in your mind that you've made up so that this person is, is kept accurate with this person. So instead, we put on Christ. I only desire to please you, glorify you. I care not what man thinks. And in that, then man will respect you. That's what's crazy about deceit. Next word, hypocrisy. Now, um, this is something that I think most of you would say, yeah, I I know full well what, what hypocrite means. Look at this Greek word. This is a lot of fun. Hypocrisies, okay? So it almost sounds like it a little bit. Now, the literal Greek... Look at this. It's really cool. The definition is the acting of a stage player. All right? So, so it's, it's acting. It's putting on. It's, it's different from deceit. Listen. When you're deceitful, you know full well that you're deceitful. In your mind, in your head, you know full well that you're deceiving. The difference between a, a deceitful person and a hypocrite is the hypocrite is acting so much, they literally start believing that that's who they are. They are thrust in such an identity crisis, they've put on such a show, that they really start believing that who they are is the show. When you just deceive people, you know that you're lying. When you become a hypocrite, you start asking, who am I? I spend my entire life just acting. I'm not even sure who I am anymore. The cross, listen, when we were yet sinners, he died for us. Do you guys understand? There is no need to act. He sees your heart. He knows who you are. And knowing that, he died. So have you really placed so much emphasis on making one another happy with you that you've lessened and you've cheapened the gospel? The gospel is, when you are yet a sinner, he died. There's no need to act and play. We already know that we're all messed up in need of Christ. So why would you act like anything else? Some of you have convinced yourself in your mind that you're good to go, that you don't need Christ. And and you're playing it to all those around you like you're some phenomenal, holy individual when inside you're broken and in need of love and encouragement. If you would just rest on the gospel then potentially the love and encouragement would come. So instead of that, we need to put on authenticity. Here's who I am. Broken, desperate. You guys may look at me often and, um, you know, think, man, that Mark guy or that Jeremy guy or whatever guy, they've just, they've really got things put together. Let me tell you something. Dude, I'm a wretched, I'm a wretched, wretched man. And I I don't want you to hear that tritely. 
Christ has given me worth. But without that, I am just, I'm the biggest hypocrite. I desire, I long to be in a community that just says, look, here we, here, here's who we are. No fake, no facade. We're not going to try to convince ourselves of anything else. Here's who we are. Right here. Hypocrisy. Next word. Envy. This, let me tell you right now, this one I feel like out of these five has kind of snuck in and has gripped a whole lot of us. Let, let me explain. The Greek word of envy is this. It's, and and it's, it's a funny uh, Greek letter there, but it's thanos. So it has that F in front. Thanos. And the literal definition of this. A desire to possess the advantage that another has. Listen, listen. For those of you that your heart is welled up with envy, you're always the victim. You're always the victim. For you, you're just the product of your poor surroundings and you're not afraid to always talk about it. In every situation, you're victimized. In every situation, it was someone else's fault. Now, how is that envious? It's envious because if your heart is welled up with envy, listen, you will forever be envious because someone will always have something that you don't. Always. You can never have it all. Do you understand? You can never possess everything in the world. Someone will always have something else. And so for some of you, you literally spend your entire existence playing the victim because you're envious. Because everywhere you look, all you see, the only lens you see through is what you don't have and what others do have. Bill Gates has things that whoever, that you don't have. You'll always want something else. That's why we need to put on contentment. Slow on the trigger. Contentment. Nice, right? I'm satisfied in Christ. That's why Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This starts hitting home, doesn't it? Look, listen, how, how much are we just playing the victim? How much are we, woe is me. And again, it appears humble. But in reality, it is extremely prideful. Very self-absorbed. Largely focused on us. Envy. Lastly, slander. This is one of those things where if you've watched L.A. Law, like you have somewhat of an idea what slander is. Any L.A. Law watchers here? Okay, just Jamie. All right, and the, the Greek word for that is, uh, and, and I love this, and it, you don't you know, necessarily have to write this, but katelalea. Okay, so for me, this is how I study the Greek words, and you, know, you kind of break it up. And the reason why it's important to study the Greek words is oftentimes there's this phenomenal underlying root that the Greek word brings out, like it does for slander. The definition is evil speaking, specifically to defame someone. So I will speak evil about whoever so that I can defame them, that I can, in someone's mind, take them from here to down here. Have you ever done that before? Has someone ever held an opinion of someone else and you helped bring that opinion down? I was just telling the truth. Are you sure or were you gossiping? Were they there? 
Was the conversation open? Would you have told them just like you told that person? How much of our life is run by defaming people? At every turn, it's like we'll do whatever it takes to take someone up here and just put them in their place because we think that's our place. Rather, the scripture says through Christ that we're to put on this. That we're to put on encouragement. That we are to speak well of people. Yes, honestly. Yes, with love. Yes, with truth. But we are to be encouragers. We're not to be defamers. We're to be encouragers. Now, you look at this list, and it's pretty, isn't it? Isn't that nice? All the graphs and slashes. I love slashes, don't you? Okay. And um, it's pretty discouraging, isn't it? I mean, you look at that list and you think about the amount of time that your life is participating in one of these or all of these. Isn't it pretty discouraging? Listen, uh, earlier I, I walked in my office and the song was playing Amazing Grace. I just walked in my office, this is like two hours ago, and the song was playing Amazing Grace. And you know what I instantly thought of? Because all this is on my whiteboard in my office. As I was like, this escalates the gospel. Because when I look at that, all of those grotesque things I am born with. I am born with malice in my heart. I'm born with envy. I'm born with slander. This is who I naturally am. And Christ knows that this is what people are. And yet, he died to forgive, to give us a new heart, to make us a new creation, so that these things could be put away. Do you guys get it? This is the power of grace. This is the overwhelming power of grace that he could take your heart, which is welled up of those five grotesque, hideous things and make you into someone that now has him on you. Now you're an encourager. Now you spread joy. Now you don't defame anymore. Now you bless people. The power of God's grace is shown in the opportunity through the cross to put these things away. So for you tonight, Which one of those five do you think most connects with where you're at? Which one of these five specifically needs to be repented of? And I would even go a step further. Which one of these five right now has caused so much damage in you and another relationship that you need to go to that relationship and repent? Say, you know what? I've been envious of you. You have an advantage and I've desired it so much so that it's caused me to well up malice. So I'm not just envious. I want to... I want to put you down. I want to cause pain to you. And, and, and not just that, but I've also slandered you. I've also gossiped about you in the hopes that I could, in my heart, make you greater. So it, it begs me to ask this question. Why, listen, why does the Bible spend so much time talking about our interaction with each other? Why? Why does the Bible spend, so, why would Peter take a few verses here and, and teach this? Why? Why does the, okay, yeah, so Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, and that's a command, but why else? Listen, the gospel is to be lived through us and around people. You guys guys get this? The gospel is to be lived through people and around people. Some of you guys may say, but but hold on, Jesus, he, he secluded. Like there were times where he got away. And I would say, I agree. And do you know what he was doing in those times? 
before the temptation of Satan comes, you know what he's doing? He's fasting and he's praying. He's secluding. He's not around people. But he's preparing his heart. Before he calls the disciples, do you know what he's doing? He's on the mountainside praying in the garden of Gethsemane before he dies. Do you know what he's doing? He's on his face praying. We get secluded so that our intimacy with Christ can grow. And then as believers, the gospel can be lived through us around people. These five things are so critical because for the gospel to be shown, these have to be put away. So that as we're revealers of the gospel around people, they don't see you, they see Christ. And it can only happen through the power of the cross. It can only happen through grace. If not, too much of this will come out and people will say, typical Christian. That's exactly what I thought. The Bible spends so much time talking about our interaction with each other because as God's children, we're called to imitate him and reflect him. That's tough. But the good thing is there's verse two. Check this out. This is a whole lot of fun. Like newborn infants, which is always a great way to start a verse. Like newborn, first of all, how many of you guys have ever like really, really seen a newborn infant? Okay. Most of you. Okay, so this will give us some perspective. <laughs> Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Um, <laughs> we got some work to do here, don't we? Right? We're talking about infants. We're talking about milk. Any milk lovers? Leche, right? We're an equal opportunity church here tonight. Um, let's listen. Let, let's break up this verse. Let's start with spiritual milk and define this. What is spiritual milk? Okay. Now, there's, there's two other metaphors in the New Testament. Listen. Where milk represents something that's like second grade. Something that's elementary. But in the context of this particular verse, that's not the idea here. Spiritual milk in this verse is, is the nurturing word of God. Yes, the end of this verse implies maturity. But in this verse, the, the nurturing word of God isn't to like start elementary and then grow. In this particular verse, it's just to be longed for. So I want to I set us straight. He's, he's not talking about something that's elementary. And we're supposed to, uh, in one metaphor in the scripture, I believe 1 Corinthians, where we're to leave the milk and, and essentially go to solid food. That's not the idea here. We're to long for the pure, nurturing Word of God. And do you see the first, uh, the, the first phrase here? Like newborn infants. Um, now, and I won't go into graphic detail here. Um, but, you know, when Avery was born, my three-year-old girl. You know, and, and it's, and again, I'm trying to figure out what to say and what not to say. It's crazy, man. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've got two cameras, one in both hands. I got the still camera. I got the thing. You know, the do- I'm freaking the doctors out because I'm, I'm like, hey, is everyone all right? Like, is everyone over here okay? We, we good, you know? How's Heidi doing? Heidi's, you know, s- listen, here's a funny story about Heidi. When, she, when Heidi goes, is she in here? No, she's in the nursery tonight. Good. Listen, when Heidi goes under anesthesia, crazy things happen. All right? And, and I'm, I'm going to tell you guys a story, and I probably shouldn't. Um, one time when she was at the dentist and she got anesthesia, all right, and the doctor came out. She, she flipped the doctor the bird, okay? Now, she had no idea what she was doing. 
But, but, when, but when Heidi goes under anesthesia, all right, don't tell her I told you that. When Heidi goes under anesthesia, crazy things happen. So I'm like making sure Heidi's okay. Like, please don't yell at the doctors. Like everyone's cool, you know. And, and then this baby comes out, you know, and they're all nasty, you know. But, but, but listen, but listen, but you're not worried about it at all. And, and I, I wept when Avery was born. When Dawson was born, like I said, I, I was like throwing him around the room. Like, let's toughen this boy up right now. But, but, but when Avery was born, I mean, I just wept. And I've got both cameras rolling. And there's one thing. Listen, there's one thing that the doctors are waiting on when that baby's born. What is it? Yeah. Is the baby going to cry? Now, contrary to popular thought, the cry is instinctive. See what I'm saying? Like, like many parents are like, why does my baby cry? Like put a plug in the thing. You know what I'm saying? Like the cry is instinctive. Listen to this. The cry is instinctive in a newborn infant, the longing and the need for milk is natural. You don't have to teach kids that they're hungry. You, you guys see this? So, so this isn't an image of like Peter bringing out newborn infants so we get a warm fuzzy. This is Peter saying a newborn infant, their need is natural. They come out hungry. And their reaction, their cry, their longing is instinctive. They have to cry. And when they cry, it's a good thing. So he says, like newborn infants, long. Now, why newborn? He's bringing emphasis again to you being born again, to you having a new nature. And because you have a new nature, you can, like a newborn infant... Seek after Christ with a genuine, natural, instinctive longing. This is powerful. But when you connect it to verse 1, what happens? So put away these five words. And then he goes into verse 2. Like newborn infants. It's as if to say, if you desire to grow up to salvation. And let me just say this. The point here isn't works-based righteousness. In other words, the point here isn't that you work yourself up to a certain level and then God says, and now you're saved. This point is maturity. This point is a point that Peter's already made. It's almost more a talking about kind of the in redeeming when Christ will take you as his. So as you work yourself up, as you grow yourself up to salvation, long for it. It's as if to say, all these five things will get in the way of that pursuit. If your heart is dwelling on those five words that we already wrestled with in verse 1, then they will get in the way of your desire. Desire is one of the most frequently things, one of the most frequent things that I talk with many of you about. I don't desire. I've lost my desire. I'm in a season where my desire seems gone. I, I don't know what to do. Mark, can we pray? I don't know where my desire went. Anyone? It's like, you go through these times and you're like, where did my desire go? I would say two things. From this particular sequence of verses, I would say, put away. I would say, put away. It, is it that your desire is gone? 
because it's been clouded by these self-absorbed thoughts that have caused you to interact with people in such a negative, grotesque way. Put away. And the second thing I would say is pray that God would give you a desire to desire. Plead that God would well up in your heart a desire to desire. So you become like a newborn infant, naturally longing, instinctively crying out. Has it lost its natural sense for you? Listen, does it feel hypocritical? Does it feel like you have to put on the longing to make everyone think, oh, newborn right there? Or is it still as natural as it always was? I, I have to long for Christ. I have to need Jesus. I have to cry out. It's just instinctive. It's beautiful. Verse 3 says this. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, put away these things like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Can we just enjoy the imagery here? So, so my question, and I hope it's your question, how do you know that the Lord is good? How do you taste and know that the Lord is good? Anyone? That should be the question, right? How do we know that God is good? Because I got a lot of people telling me right now that because of Haiti, God ain't good. I got a lot of people saying things like, another miscarriage, God ain't good. I, I got a lot of people in my ear saying, there's no way God can be good if you would allow this and this and this. Do you see what I'm saying? So how do we know that God is good? Two ways. The first way is initial grace. In other words, when you or you watch someone experience the grace of God for the first time. In other words, when someone begins relationship with Jesus, recognizing their own depravity, recognizing the power of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross... And they start relationship and they're made right with God because of who Jesus is. That moment when grace floods over their depravity. Don't you know that the Lord is good? Some of you in that moment, you've been so freed. The burden has gone. The shackles have come off. And, and, and it's not just in you. When you watch that happen for someone else. And this is why... My heart is burdened for evangelism. It's one thing to experience it for yourself and it's a whole nother thing to see it in someone else. The reality is many of you, because of your lack of, of unbelieving relationships, because of the lack of empowerment to share the gospel, you haven't been able to watch someone be saved by God or even enjoy the process. Because this doesn't just happen in one moment. God processes. He saves us over a journey. And, and yes, oftentimes it culminates. When was the last time you just sat with someone that you built a relationship with and they just came to this point where they were desperate? They're like, I, I got nowhere else to go. Listen to this. True story. I, I get my text message. I, I wake up early. I'm an early bird. Anyone else? Okay. 
Well, we can all talk, the three of us. We'll have a conference call tomorrow at 4. I don't get up then, 4.15. Just kidding. Jamon's still up at that point, right? Um, I get up and I call Jamon. I'm like, what's up, dude? He's like, hey, I'm just going to bed. <laughs> Listen to this. Listen to this. I got, a te- I got a text from someone last night at 3.38 a.m. Now, I, just so you know, I don't keep my phone on ring right by the, so you feel free, okay? Blow me up, I probably won't answer it in the middle of the night. But here's what this text said. Listen, this is gorgeous. This text said, no matter how hard I try to run, and this is a girl I've pursued, this is a girl I've shared the gospel with many, many times, and the last co- communication I had with her, she said, don't talk to me ever again. She texts me at 3.38 and she says, no matter how hard I try to run, God keeps pursuing This is a girl who a few weeks ago said, never talk to me again. And it wasn't that our interaction was bad. She just didn't want to be, she just didn't want to hear about Christ anymore. And so I get this text this morning. And you know what I do? I instantly taste that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. I've been praying for this girl. I've been pleading that this girl, that this girl would see the reality of Christ. And I read this text. And I'm just like, the Lord is good. But friends, we're not having enough of those encounters. We're always just having to remember that initial grace that we experience, which is tremendous. But we're reminded of our own experience when we see it in others. That's why we're called to live the gospel around people and not in the cave. So that we have the opportunity to watch God save. And that's the point. We get to watch God do his thing. We get to watch God save. It's not you saving, it's him saving. I didn't come up with some crafty words to tell this girl. No, it was God who reached down, pursued her heart again, and said, you're not running. Is the Lord good? Oh, yeah. The second thing, I'll phrase it like this, continual grace. And there's three parts to this. Continual grace. So initial grace, continual grace. Continual grace, first of all, over our sin. Well, what do you mean, Mark? As a newborn Christian, starting relationship with Christ, I'm called to imitate God and to look like Jesus. But those five things I still struggle with. Anyone else? Still struggle with those. My, my flesh has been killed on the cross, Scripture says, but I st- those are still a struggle of mine. The amazing thing about the grace of God is that meaning my heart with a sorrowful, repentant, God, I just, I need your grace. I continue to see his grace pour over my ongoing sin, despite me being a child of his. Do you guys understand this? The grace just isn't sufficient when he saves you, when he redeems you from yourself. His grace continues to be sufficient. That's why in Lamentations 3, we celebrated the verse, his mercies are new every morning. Every morning, His mercies are new. So we see continual grace over our sin. The second thing is we see continual grace through our trials. Now, this may sound weird to you. The situation in Haiti is, is horrible. Horrible. There's no, come on, there's no good words for it. You know, Miles went down there last week and had some communication. It's just a horrible situation. But listen to this. Some of the folks that have gone through that experience 
will end up saying, God, thank you for the grace enough to bring me through this that I could know you more. Some of you have been ripped apart by relationships that have just been broken and fallen apart. Uh, some of you have, have been defamed. Some of you have, have gone through tremendous trial in your family. But you continue to see God's pursuing grace as he says, you're still my kid. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And it doesn't mean that that trial is going to end up with you standing on a trophy stand, raising your hands held high, saying it all turned out great. How do I know that God's good? Because he continues to pursue and pour out his grace always to make his name great. So we see his continual grace through our sin. We see his continual grace through our trial. And listen to this. We see his continual grace in the pursuit of holiness. As he takes us and he walks with us, making us more like himself so that we can experience victory. Come on. On the process of becoming more like him, I hope that there have been some, some momentary times of victory where you've been struggling, you've been wrestling, you've been just, this sin has just overwhelmed you and then his grace floods you and you experience freedom and he grows you. And you get to sit there saying, I, I have become more like you today. God, thank you for your continual grace. In those two ways, Every day, every moment, you could be tasting and knowing that the Lord is good. And so Peter's point is, then you would have to put away those things. Because you don't want anything to cloud the moment to be intimate with Christ. And his point is, if you want to long for the pure, unmixed, unadulterated, which is the Greek word, it's adalos, for, for pure, it means it's unmixed, it's completely unadulterated, completely pure. If you want the pure form of God's word and the spirit mixing with it to speak to you and to reform you, then none of these things can get clouded. None of these things can get in the way. So he says, put them away. Put them away and taste and know that the Lord is good. One question. Today, have you tasted and known that he's good? And if not, I would say, why not? Because in those moments of remembrance of his goodness, it's like getting that text at 338 where it's like, you are real. And even though I lack faith, you continue to show yourself. That's the opportunity we have as the church. One of the most powerful images of tasting and an image that would forever remind us that when we taste, we remember that the Lord is good is when we share together in this meal, remembering Christ when he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. And when you taste this, remember that I'm good. Remember that my grace is sufficient. Remember that your heart is filled with those five
grotesque things that will cause tremendous relational strife. But remember, my grace is enough. So when you taste this, remember the sacrifice. Remember that I'm good. Remember that I'm holy. Remember that I'm enough. Then he took the cup and he raised it and he just, in, in literally one of the most powerful moments in the scripture, he said, this is the blood in the new, in the new covenant, a new promise that all of creation was longing for, like newborn infants. This is the cup in my new covenant. Take this and drink this and do it in remembrance of me and may the taste of this cause you to remember the horrific sacrifice that me as God humbled myself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Remember that when you taste this. And so um, I, I want to say a couple things. First of all, uh, some of you have never taken communion because you're not a believer. You don't know Jesus. But God's been stirring in you and you've been wondering. And even tonight you're like, you know, I'm just tired of running. I'm tired of my self-absorbed life. And I just, I just want to know Jesus. I want to tell you something. I'm going to be standing over here. And if, if that's you tonight, you're just like, you know what? I've never taken communion because I'm not a believer. But I, I just desire to believe in Christ and to follow him. That's my heart. That's my longing. Just, just come over here and, and let's talk. And, and I'd love to take communion with you. Th this is a meal for believers. So if you are a believer here, my encouragement is this. Is that you repent. And then as you make this walk to take this meal tonight. And as the, the, the bread and the cup hit your mouth. As, and we, we take communion here by intention. We pull off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. May that taste be a remembrance to you that he's good. And church, when there's a whole bunch of people that really believe that he's good and that we're not, that will be evidenced because the gospel must be lived through people around people. So church, the call tonight is to rest in his grace, to trust in who he is, to repent of our lack,